welcome to another episode of The Intersection. I'm Mark Riley, and thanks so much for joining us. There are new efforts to raise the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour. Now, before we get into the meat of all this, we need to establish some essential facts. The minimum wage on the federal level has been stuck at $7.25 an hour since 2009. That's 11 years and counting. The proposal now being pushed would raise the minimum wage over four years, in other words, to $15 an hour in 2025. These are important facts to remember because those who oppose raising the minimum wage often obscure them for their own purposes. Here are a couple of more facts. $15 an hour would lift an estimated 900,000 people out of poverty in the United States and provide wage increases to 27 million workers. Think about that for a minute. 900,000 people lifted out of poverty, wage increases for 27 million workers. Now, you're going to hear a lot from people who oppose increasing the minimum wage. They point to a few downsides. The Congressional Budget Office estimates 1.4 million jobs will be lost to a $15 minimum wage. They also estimate the federal budget deficit would increase by $54 billion over a decade, not over four years, which is the time it would take to increase the minimum wage, but over a decade. And 1.4 million jobs, that works out to 350,000 jobs a year over the four-year period. Assuming the nation's economy grows at a conservative rate of 100,000 jobs a month, those jobs would be made up in relatively short order. As for the deficit, the $54 billion over a decade isn't likely to cause a recession by itself. But that's really not the reason these people and these companies oppose raising the minimum wage. They all make really, really good money off the backs of so-called low-wage workers. Nobody is crying poverty. And a lot of times what ends up happening is that big companies that pay low wages end up pushing small business people out front and using them as human shields and using them to say, well, if the minimum wage is increased, I'm going to have to cut my workforce by X number of people. And, you know, nobody wants to ignore the plight of small businesses, especially in the wake of coronavirus. But this has been an argument that well predates coronavirus. And keep in mind that there are cities across America, including New York and Seattle, that have already raised their minimum wage to $15 an hour and have not suffered the job losses or any of the other maladies that people who oppose raising the federal minimum wage put forward. They just haven't experienced that. In fact, restaurant workers who are low wage workers in the main have actually seen increases in the number of jobs available since the minimum wage went up. Now, I get passionate about this, uh, if you haven't noticed. This really, really is something that I feel strongly about. And that's because when I worked for 1199 SEIU, the nation's largest healthcare workers union, our president, George Gresham, who ought to have a statue uh, named for him in the middle of New York City somewhere, he led the fight 
for 15 in New York. I learned firsthand from nursing home and hospital workers what $15 an hour meant to them. A cold recitation of numbers does not begin to tell the story of workers for whom $15 an hour means the difference between paying bills and putting off a few bills until the following month, which of course is quite stress inducing. It means putting money back into their community. It means pride in the work they do, whether it's quote, flipping burgers or caring for vulnerable senior citizens. And I think it's very, very interesting that in many cases, people who oppose raising the minimum wage always bring up fast food. Well, should these people make $15 an hour for flipping burgers? It's not just people who work in fast food who are underpaid. Certainly, when you look at nursing homes, certainly when you look at some of the other areas, and again, I know this because I worked for a union that represented those workers. Those are folks that don't get caught up in the flipping burgers analogy. And what's ironic about it, and, and something we had to put forward at the time, was that in many instances, these workers were caring for rich people's relatives. And they're getting peanuts, and the people who put their grandfather or their granduncle or whomever in these nursing homes, they're making real good money. So there is this dichotomy that exists and will continue to exist because people who oppose the minimum wage keep saying over and over again, it's only about fast food workers, which is convenient because what they then say is that these are only part-time workers or these are college kids and they don't deserve a $15 minimum wage. Now, the promoters of grievance culture argue that if the minimum wage is raised, social security payments should be raised as well. After all, social security recipients earn theirs as if working for 40 hours a week doesn't earn someone a decent wage. Now, one article I saw chronicled a woman working at a fast food outlet who was making $8.80 an hour after working there for eight years. Eight years. And you don't think that person deserves a raise over four years to $15 an hour? Such is the lot of people who start out making $7.25 an hour. There's one other stat that people need to know. And just think about this. I'm not going to racialize it because I think it speaks for itself. If a $15 minimum wage over four years is enacted, 31% of black workers would get a raise. 26% of Latino workers would see an increase. I'll just leave it there. I'd also argue that the wage increase should not be measured against four years, but against 15 years. That's 11 years since the last raise, plus four more to get to 15. In that context, the raise doesn't seem to be nearly as onerous. Now, the $15 minimum wage proposal is currently part of the $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill. President Biden supports it, but he's given himself some wiggle room. While the bill is likely to have passed the House with the raise intact, its fate in the Senate is not as secure. At least two Democratic senators are on record as opposing the bill with the raise in it, meaning the president may well jettison the $15 proposal to get the bill passed. Unfortunately, 
That's how politics works. Yet in New York, Governor Andrew Cuomo, who at first opposed the fight for 15, later came around to support it and signed it into law. This was largely due to the hard work of fast food workers and the workers at 1199 SEIU. We brought 8,000 workers to the state capitol in Albany in support of the $15 minimum wage. There have already been a series of strikes in 15 different U.S. cities taking up the fight. Pressure needs to be put on those Democratic senators already on record as opposing a $15 minimum wage. America simply cannot afford for the minimum wage to stay where it is. When we come back, what are Democrats doing to Katie Porter? It's Mark Riley with the intersection of politics and culture. Stay tuned. Welcome back to The Intersect. Some of you may not know the name Katie Porter. She's a congresswoman from Orange County, California, and she is one of the Democratic Party's rising stars. Don't take my word for it. Just Google Katie Porter and Jamie Dimon. If you don't know who Jamie Dimon is, he's the CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase. Spoiler alert, Katie Porter ties him up in knots during his appearance before the House Financial Services Committee. Sadly, Financial Services is a committee Katie Porter is not on in this session of Congress. Why, you may ask? It looks as though it's a couple of factors, part of which is a set of arcane rules brought to you by the House Democratic Caucus. No need to bore you with them here, but those rules had the effect of throwing Katie Porter off a committee she was already on. Not only on, but highly effective on. Now, I've seen two different articles about this, and I'm sure they're not the only two in the universe. One was from the Washington Post and one was from the American Prospect. Both pieces decry the rules that pushed Katie Porter off financial services, but they have very different conclusions about why it happened. The Post made it seem like the rules of the caucus were at fault. The Prospect, on the other hand, alleged more sinister motives and put the blame on committee chair Maxine Waters. This troubled me greatly since I've always admired Congresswoman Waters as a fighter for progressive causes. She certainly went toe-to-toe -to -toe with Donald Trump to the point that she got death threats from at least one Trump supporter. However, like many politicians, she is willing to make deals to get legislation passed. And I think we ought to pause there and say that this is how politics works. Unfortun it's, it's unfortunate that people sometimes have to sacrifice their principles in order to get legislation passed that would have the effect of bringing something positive to their local constituencies. Now, she did, after all, did Maxine Waters, shrink the Financial Services Committee from 60 members to 54. Still, there should have been room for Katie Porter. There wasn't. Is Maxine Waters to blame? That's inconclusive, but one thing is certain. Given the thin Democratic margins in the House and Senate, there's precious little room for disunity, especially given the chaos that's taking place on the other side of the aisle. Plain and simple, put Katie Porter back on the House Financial Services Committee. Now, that can be done. You know, it's just, uh, I won't say the sweep of a pen, but it could, in fact, 
happen. It seems it's time. It seems at times, I should say. When Congress people without seniority get some measure of attention, and Katie Porter has gotten attention, there's backlash from more senior members. AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, springs to mind, as do other members of the so-called squad. But attention really isn't the point, is it? How about delivering for the people that put you there? How about stimulus checks for Americans who are hurting? How about making sure every state in the union has enough vaccines and PPE? Now, I could go off for hours about how sad it is that states are now hoarding vaccines, giving vaccines to the wealthy and powerful, at least in a couple of alleged cases. There are all kinds of problems with getting these vaccine doses to people in these different states. And as is usually the case, it is the poor and working people of different states that end up getting the short end of the stick. There is a lot of work to do, and the nation's verdict will come in the form of next year's election. The House could fall into Republican hands, and all this Democratic squabbling could come to naught. And I would say, in this case, forewarned is definitely forearmed. Katie Porter, is, and never mind whether she gets attention, Never mind if some people might call her a media star. If you watch her performance in the House Financial Services Committee, not just in questioning Jamie Dimon, but also questioning government bureaucrats and literally tying them up in knots about fundamental information that they should know but do not know. And you realize how important and in fact, how precious she is. And for her to get knocked off of a committee. And, you know, there's this whole thing about, well, some committees are exclusive and some committees aren't exclusive and blah, 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 blah. The House Democratic Caucus needs to get its act together, period. I'm not going to blame Maxine Waters for this because I don't know. I mean, the, the prospect says that there were a couple of times when she showed some peak about how Katie Porter proceeded in questioning certain people that came before the committee, I don't know and I don't care. I think the important thing here, the important thing is that Katie Porter get back on that committee, be allowed to question people about fundamental issues that affect not just her constituents, but poor and working people all over America. And that's the important part, isn't it? All too often, the framing of issues in this country start with how it affects well-to-do people. People don't have any problems paying their rent. People don't have any problems paying their electric. And oh, isn't it awful that this is happening or that's happening to me? See, that's the root, ladies and gentlemen, of the grievance culture that we allowed to dominate the American landscape for the previous four years under that grifter, and you know his name. I don't need to speak it here. The fact of the matter is, grievance culture should have no place in American political discourse, yet it does. And the sooner we flush it out and get rid of it, the better off we all will be. And finally, Texas. Some want to secede from the United States. Should we as a nation give them their wish? 
This is The Intersection. Join the conversation at Mark Riley Media on Facebook. Welcome back to The Intersection. I can't help but feel for the people of the great state of Texas. During this last snowstorm and cold snap, four million people in the state were left without power. Millions more had no water or had to boil the water they did have. The power grid that serves most of the state turned out to be woefully inadequate. At first, as is their habit, the right wing tried to blame windmills, the Green New Deal, climate change, etc. for the bulk of the problem. They even had the nerve to use a six-year-old picture of a helicopter spraying a windmill as their proof. Too bad the picture wasn't taken in Texas. It was taken in Sweden. Such is the lot of climate change deniers. If the pain of the storm and lack of power weren't enough, some Texans are being socked with humongous power bills. And then, of course, there's Ted Cruz, the man Texans sent to the United States Senate, the one who, when his constituents were suffering, hopped a flight to Cancun and only came back when the heat got too bad. No pun intended. That Texas was let down by its politicians is the height of understatement. Too many of them have a go-it-alone attitude that looks absolutely ridiculous in the face of Mother Nature. Wonder how those lawmakers who have been promoting Texas secession feel about that now. It was only the beginning of the month, the month of February, that a Texas state legislator introduced a bill that would allow residents of the state to vote on secession. They're calling it Texas, and its rationale is that the federal government doesn't re reflect the, quote, values, unquote, of Texans. Ironically, this latest talk of leaving the good old USA came in December, after Donald Trump lost the 2020 election. No surprise, then, that this guy who introduced the bill, Representative Kyle Biederman, attended the January 6th rally in D.C. that turned into a riot. Even some of his GOP colleagues think the idea of succession is whack. However, it does sort of give one pause. Am I the only one who wouldn't shed a tear if Texas seceded? I know and like people from Texas, and I don't even hold it against the state that they were one of the earliest to go for the grifter in the last election. And I don't think Texas would vote to leave, especially after the lapses brought out by the snowstorm and power outages. Can you imagine such breathtaking incompetence in charge of an entire republic? Sad to say, there are entire republics, entire nation states that are run by people who are totally incompetent. Why would Texas want to add to that? Now, I must say, however, that there is hope for the state of Texas. And I must confess, I've thought of this before. There is one person who could represent Texas with a degree of honor and competence so sorely lacking in the current crop of Bindle Stiffs. Now, there have been other people who have run uh, for office. Beto O'Rourke lost 
rather narrowly, in fact, to Ted Cruz in 2018. So this is not the only person. Maybe I'm exaggerating when it comes to that. But this person would put Texas on a normal, rational path. He's the current coach and president of the San Antonio Spurs. Greg Popovich would make a brilliant governor or a brilliant senator to replace the likes of either Greg Abbott, the current governor, or Ted Cruz. He's an unapologetic progressive and certainly a man not to be trifled with. That could be the reason why he wouldn't make a good politician. He doesn't suffer fools gladly or at all. Pop for governor of Texas? Pop for senator from Texas? It's just a thought, but it beats secession, doesn't it? Asking for a friend. Now, I'm not crazy enough to think that Greg Popovich would give up what he has to run for governor or run for senator. I'm just saying he's a guy that has impeccable chops. Do people forget he's a graduate of the United States Air Force Academy? So people who think, well, he would be soft on, uh, and, and defund the military. No, he wouldn't, actually. I don't think he would. However, when it comes to race relations, when it comes to police brutality, when it comes to health care, he is on the right side of all those issues. And when I say right side, I'm saying on the progressive side of all those issues. And sad to say, Texas is currently in the throes, not just of people who are on the wrong side, but people who seemingly can't get out of their own way. Can you imagine the notion of, uh, and by the way, it's not unprecedented, but the notion of a sitting United States Senator deciding, well, I'm going to go to Mexico for a few days and then throwing his children under the bus. Well, I went because my kids wanted to have a, a, a time and some warm air and this and that and the other. And then they have text messages that say that Ted Cruz's wife had been organizing this trip for days beforehand and didn't mention their kids in it at all. These are the kind of things that politicians do. Now, some people will say, well, you know, there's not much Ted Cruz could have done. You know, he's, he, he's just a senator. There's no legislation he could have gotten passed to help the people of the state of Texas. That's not the point. And the people who make that argument know it's not the point. The point is, when something like this happens, when a natural catastrophe takes place, it is the duty of elected officials to stand and help their constituents. And Ted Cruz, some might argue, cynics might argue, that he helped his constituents by getting out of Dodge. But the fact of the matter is there are other elected officials in the state of Texas, both Democrat and Republican, that stood firm, stood fast, and helped. Ted Cruz, unfortunately, was not one of them. There's some time before he actually ends up being up for re-election. I believe it's 2024. Let's see what happens. Thanks so much for joining us for another episode of The Intersection. The executive producer of this program is Ms. Kim Jack Riley. Music is by Eric Lund. Until we meet again, please stay well.